0: As we head into twenty twenty-one, I think it's safe to say we're all hoping to put the year that was firmly behind us. But we can't really ignore the fact that there are a lot of question marks hovering around us. The global economy, China, vaccines, changes to government stimulus, and whether or not APRA will step in to slow a galloping property market.
1: So I think the big thing for twenty twenty one is that the owner occupiers are leading the way. I think the investors are going to come to the party next year big time. And that's Not just because the market's building momentum and it seems attractive to investors. It's not just because investors have been sort of soft for three years now, but it's because investors have got nowhere to put their money.
0: download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right the, in the to help us get a better understanding of the big things that could make or break us this year we're joined by economist Warren Hogan Warren was formerly the chief economist for ANZ bank and currently wears a number of hats including that of industry professor at UTS Business School and chief economic advisor at the Executive Connection. Now, we last spoke to Warren in mid-2019, episode 75, if you want to go back and have a listen. And at that time, there was plenty of talk circulating around us heading into a, dis- uh, sorry, a recession. Now, I think it's fair to say that none of us anticipated that a pandemic would send us there. Thank you for joining us today, Warren. We're looking forward to your insights.
1: Thanks, Veronica. It's great to be back and uh, in a very different world to last time we spoke.
2: <laughs> yes, that's right, Warren. I mean, what a year to be an economist, I guess, just watching things and learning, I guess. But before we talk about Australia, what do you think the global sort of legacy 2020 is going to have on sort of the global economy?
1: Yeah, I think we'll we'll put it down as a, as a, a change in the direction of world history, these things obviously accumulate, um, but this was a, a tipping point, at least in terms of recognizing it. And that big change is obviously the end of what might be called the sort of the neoliberal era of globalization and financialization, and the the rise of the people who didn't benefit from that. And uh, that's best sort of summed up by Trump, um, but a whole range of other things, such as you know the rise of China and geopolitical discord and of course what this pandemic really showed apart from all the health issues which are really important of course but is that when it comes down to it we're all a bunch of nations Um, Mm. and although we have worked very hard to coordinate and everything in the end everyone's first sort of preference or priority is to look after their own country Um, and I think that's the challenge that the world represents right now is that the, the model that we've had for the last 40 years which is Australia has benefited from greatly um, is changing. It has been changing since the GFC and I fear that change is going to get, Is the pace is going to pick up a lot more as we go into the 2020s.
0: So when so you I'll say it's Brexit. changing, you're sort of talking about really a reversal of globalisation.
1: Well, I think that's uh, certainly a banner issue, uh, a headline sort of issue. I think uh, there's a lot more to it than just trade or the movement of goods and services and people uh, capital and yeah look the pandemic (laughs) stopped the movement of people which is critical I think think that'll revive maybe not to the extent it was but it's actually a recognition that whatever happens in an economy um, there are winners and losers Mm. and the smart societies help the losers and make sure that what's going on is sustainable and America certainly didn't get that right. They've got a whole sort of industrial working class that's either been displaced or has seen their standard Mm of living stop. We've got that to some extent here. Um, But it is, it's people who don't like the system that's brought a lot of wealth and economic benefit to only a proportion of the society. And, of course, there's all the things that go along with that sort of ultra sort of profit motive type driven corporate world and things around the environment and and, and there's a lot of stuff, you know. So, yes, globalisation is the headline but it's a lot of Mm. I think what people would regard as unsustainable behaviours that are are an offshoot of that, that, that era. Greed. Give it a name. Yep. Greed over uh, greed over concern, I suppose uh, mm. could be could be part of it. But yeah, look, there's there's a world that's changing too. The rise of China is obviously the the again the headline, um, yeah. but it's really about the fact that the the European model, the post World War II model, is is not the only model. So, do you envisage that China is probably going to be one of the biggest beneficiaries
2: of this sort of change? I mean, seeing today that they don't want our coal anymore, um, which is probably you know, that canary in the coal mine saying is kind of, you know, hard to sort of put together, you know. Do you think that China's going to literally be demanding
1: the way the world's going to go from here? Well, I think they're they're going to have a big say in it or they're at least going to do what they feel they've got to do Uh, and that has got a lot to do with the rest of the world because uh, they're resource dependent. That is, they have to import a lot of stuff, whether it's our, well, not coal anymore um, but iron Mm -hmm. ore and food. Um, You know, they they need to trade um, or or have an empire like the Europeans used to have. Uh, They need resources. So they're going to very much want to shape the world, and they are. And their behaviours to Australia right now in 2020 um, are all geopolitical. They are all about China exerting its... Dominant position in Asia, exerting its global muscle, and 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 we're we're really the ones copying it. And and what'll be interesting here is how much the rest of the world comes to our defence. I saw mm. when they put the tariffs on our wine, wine lovers all around the world got together and, and sort of had a, had a drink <laughs> for Australia. Um, <laughs> but right now, the 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 issue is actually whether the 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 free world, for a lack of a better term, uh, actually really stands up to China on what they're doing to Australia because if we appease mm-hmm. the Chinese, well, we saw what that happened in the 1930s with the Germans.
0: Well, it, it, you know, call me simplistic, call me naive, but why are we still selling so much iron ore to them then?
1: Uh, well, they're, they're the world's biggest producer of steel. They make about half the world's steel. That's a position they've um, uh, attained in the last 20, 25 years. Um and they, they don't have a lot of iron ore within their borders. They have to import mm. that key ingredient to steel. You'll note that the coal bans on Australia are only for thermal coal, I believe, not for coking coal, which is obviously the other component to steel. <laughs> um, mm. So they they are the world's biggest producer of steel. Their exports of steel. Uh, more than the second biggest producer's total output, which is Japan. Yeah, okay. Uh, And then South Korea is another massive producer of steel. So Northeast Asia is the world's steel-making hub. Um, Australia and Brazil are the big suppliers of iron ore, and so they need us. Um, So why can't we use it as
0: as a a bargaining
1: chip? That's right, we can. And, And look, the Australian government's sort of caught between Trying to manage the situation and also be a good sort of global citizen in terms of trade behaviours. Mm. But one thing I've sort of suggested is an export tariff on iron ore, <laughs> where you actually you know charge the Chinese more. Um, but that that will be us, you know, you know, turning the turning the dial up on the conflict. So, so yeah, you know, um, I don't think I don't think there's any um, should be any illusions that we're we're in a cold war. Um, and uh, the, that's, it's, we're right in the middle of it right now in Australia. Well, I think through the GFC or post-GFC,
2: the, coal pro- the iron ore price you know, was one of the saviors for the Australian economy and you hmm. know, we've kind of hit 90 highs again now. Do you think that we can just sort of piggyback off iron ore to get us through even if other parts of the economy don't you know, get sold to China, for example?
1: Well look I think it's it's just a wonderful feature of the Australian economy um, our natural resource base where sort of you know 25 million people with this massive land mass um, that has a lot of resources from from things like steel and other minerals and metals to precious metals and food um, so we should always be you know sustainably taking advantage of that and we've done it in various ways you know back in the you know it was wool and wheat at times now it's metal metal. um but it does highlight what's going on now that you know we we are vulnerable to this international economy and to particular trading partners um we need to diversify um and we will one way or the other whether it's painfully or not um If this situation with China deteriorates. But I think there is a broader issue is it's great to take advantage of that resource base and the money that comes with it, but it, we shouldn't let it stop the rest of the economy um, being match fit. Um, mm. And I think that's the big issue here is getting our manufacturing sector up and going again. It has shrunk over the last 40 years from 14% of the economy to six um, and the government is identifying that as critical and they've identified key areas. Our services economy. I mean, unfortunately, some of the most important um, sectors for Australia have been hit hard by the pandemic in terms of tourism and international education. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we do not want to be just you know totally reliant on these resources, and 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 that's I think something that um, we're gonna we're gonna continue to have to look at very closely, and we will be forced to.
0: So, you see a future for manufacturing in Australia?
1: No, totally. Um, it, we have to get the right. Policy settings, Um, you know, the big challenge, you know, the way the pressure brought to bear on our manufacturing sector is all essentially about um, our currency being uh, higher than it otherwise would because of our mineral exports, because of iron ore exports, because of coal exports. The Aussie dollar's Mm. higher. Mm. That makes it harder for our manufacturers to compete either with imports or in... In terms of exports into international markets. I've done a lot of work with the food and beverage manufacturing industry in the last 18 months, and this is our biggest manufacturing sector by far, mm. and we have a natural marketplace, you know, feeding Australians. We have a great natural resource input, i.e. agriculture. I mean, Australia produces about three times as much food each year as we need, uh, but we are losing capacity in that space. Uh, we have been losing what we call non-food groceries, so, you know, all the you know hand sanitizers and toilet paper, um, all of that stuff has gradually gone overseas because it's easy, it's cheaper to make over there, and we're starting to see longer life foods shift overseas as well. And so this is an area that's got to be addressed. We've got you know it's great history in this space, and the government is now actively looking at ways to support investment in that industry. So I think yeah we do we do in the um, we've got the the know how. You, you look at some of our successful manufacturing in the last 20 years, and it's actually high-end stuff. So there's, a, there's companies in Victoria that produce the machines, that produce the manufacturing equipment to make Apple iPhones, for example. You know, the Australian company makes the machine that makes the machine, so to speak. Yeah. So we're <laughs> so. very high-end. It's just about getting the economics right. And, and the Australian government doesn't, you know, provide a huge amount of support to industry like it used to generations ago, Um and uh, of course, a lot of Asian countries are very heavily government influenced. Obviously, China being the ultimate expression of that, with all its state-owned enterprises and so forth.
0: Yeah, you haven't mentioned so, yeah, wages we've got a though. So, because wa- I mean, you haven't mentioned wages because obviously our cost of labour is mm. is a lot higher than a lot of those countries as well.
1: Totally, yeah, and you know it, it'll it'll preclude certain low-end manufacturing, and and you're seeing the Chinese actually shed a lot of textile and cheap manufacturing into Southeast Asia in the last ten years because mm. their wages are going up. Mm. So, yeah, it is about what kind of manufacturing. So I, I remember visiting when I was at ANZ, you know, Mercedes in Germany and and sort of, you know, because ANZ was very Asian-focused and I was giving them all the wage costs for different parts of Southeast Asia and trying to tell them why they should set up their next, you know, C-class manufacturing facility in Vietnam or something. <laughs> and they actually said, well, look, it actually doesn't matter to us anymore because, you know, basically we automate everything and, you know, we have high-end, mm. high-end. manufacturing workers. And we want to make our stuff in Germany as much as possible. And and that's the mentality. It's the interesting thing, and you'll find this with our unions, is, you know, in our car industry was a classic example of, you know, you lose jobs in manufacturing through automation. Mm. But the, the data shows that the countries with the most manufacturing employment with the highest levels of pay are those with the highest levels of automation, that being Germany and South Korea. Mm. So, yeah, know, we've got a future. We've just got to be smart about it. And we are coming from behind the eight ball because, you know, we, we, we have – would say let that industry whittle on the vine but you know it, it, it hasn't had a critical mass in many different sectors.
2: So I mean the exchange rate is the issue there plus wages but I mean obviously the exchange rate the government's trying to reduce it but every country in the world is trying to do the same <laughs> thing so you've got this kind yeah, of yeah. currency war that's been playing out for a long time um, mm. but if not amplified through the last year. I mean what's your views around this quantitative easing and you know, are we going to keep on doing it? I mean, is there enough? You know, I guess there's a, you know, Bill Evans. I guess thinks another hundred billion in 2021. I mean, do you think something similar to that? So, what, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I, th- I just read that in the paper myself, and you know, that seems reasonable. Um, they've done a hundred billion for the first six months of the program, which will take us through to basically budget time next year. Then, uh. I'd say that program will be extended. Yes, that the, the QA in Australia, which I, I didn't think they were going to do and I don't think they should be doing it right now, yeah. mm. um, is us officially joining that currency war. But the problem we've got is, you know, that $100 billion is just nothing compared yeah. to what the Japanese <laughs> yeah. <and> the Europeans <laughs> and the Americans produce. So I actually don't think it's material material. Um, but it's yeah. uh, it's a it's an insurance policy against not just the currency going up but you know long term funding costs going up and you know that does affect the ability for our financial system to provide cheap credit to the domestic market which of course is um, yeah you know important right now um, and obviously a major factor driving the housing market well that's it isn't it you know we might not win the the exchange rate war but we will
2: definitely uh, push down the cost of long term credit which you know, you can already see that's forcing
1: going to sort of mortgage rates and mm. encouraging people to pump up house prices, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the big story right now is is the housing market in Australia. I think it's a it's 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 a, a it's a phenomenal story. And I think twenty twenty is gonna be a, a big year for property in Australia. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and when I mean, we feel that on the ground, but what are you looking at when you say that?
1: Mm. Yeah, so I thought that, you know, and you guys would know this better than anyone, we had a we had a cyclical downturn in property in 2016-17 that stretched into 2019. You yeah, know, we mm-hmm. had that huge bull market, then we had the APRA standards that were tightened. Rates didn't go up, but they didn't come down. Um, and so we had a slowdown, and that was probably a health, it was a healthy thing. Um, I was mm-hmm. a bit surprised how long it went for. I thought we'd turn around in 19. I was probably quite bullish when we spoke in mid 19. But by earlier this year, it did, yeah. And it was later in the year it really started to turn. Yeah. And uh, we went into the pandemic with a a bit of momentum in, uh, you know, you know, sentiment um, and and activity was picking up in the housing market. The pandemic obviously is just like a pause button, Uh, (laughs) and then the RBA obviously has cut rates even further and various other sort of things are going on in the industries so in terms of startups and non-bank lenders and a lot of there's a lot of funding out there. Yeah. Uh, the deferrals have been critical to just you know the whole economy but it's also sort of taken sort of that risk of uh, wholesale fire sale in the investor space. So what you're seeing is you're seeing something quite unusual for Australia in the context of you know the last 20 years anyway and that's owner occupiers driving this upswing. Yeah, um, and I think that's the pent up demand in that sector from the downturn, which started in you know seventeen, and really should have been really picking up speed when the pandemic hit, but didn't. So there's some pent up demand from a few years of soft market conditions, and then there's a preference shift off the pandemic. I'm I'm strongly of the view that people are going actually, I want to live in the suburbs. I don't want to live in an apartment or I'm happy oh, to yeah, actually buy a place three hours out of Sydney now, not just two hours where it's really expensive or what have you. Um, so we're, we're seeing this surge in activity by own occupiers, both 1st home buyers and upgraders, and yet the investor market's still been lagging. And mm-hmm. the new mortgage data shows investors have been really soft really now for three years. So my view is that we're going to, you know, assuming we continue on the path Of recovery from the pandemic there's huge amounts of government stimulus in the system it looks like we should transition through the end of JobKeeper pretty well although we've got to keep an eye on that and then the end of the bank deferrals doesn't look like it's going to be the hiccup that we thought it might have been given that so many of those deferrals have sort of been brought back online so I think the big thing for 2021 is that the owner occupiers are leading the way I think the investors are going to come to the party next year big time and that's Not just because the market's building momentum and it seems attractive to investors. It's not just because investors have been sort of soft for three years now, but it's because investors have got nowhere to put their money. You got term deposits Um, at (laughs) fifty basis points, and they're going to work out after getting you know three quarterly statements where their two hundred grand deposit is paid them precisely. You know what? Two grand, <laughs> one thousand dollars,
0: thousand dollars, yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, a year, and then they yeah. think, oh, house prices just went up fifteen percent in Jerrangong. Yeah, really? um, so I reckon the investor's is going to hit the hit the market hard next year and put that sort of typical marginal. That yeah, the investor is usually the one driving the market in, in Sydney in Australia um in the last 30 years and i think they're going to get back in there and i think house prices are going to really take off and this is this is all in the sort of the broader consistent with the broader story that uh when central banks ease monetary policy which uh you know was cutting rates in the old days yep. which is now cutting rates to zero and doing quantitative easing is that the old fear of inflation which is measured as the price of milk and butter um is not there and where all the inflation is is in asset prices all that extra liquidity they're mm, forcing yeah. into the mm. system gets blown out into the economy into the society through housing markets through equity markets you know maybe through the price of things like gold and collectors items and fine art yeah. so it's asset price inflation and i think that we saw something unique with this pandemic not just in this country but around the world which was both a massive fiscal stimulus and further monetary stimulus. It's proven to work, but as soon as it works, it's almost by definition too much and the thing's going to just explode. So, the explosion in this country, more than just anyone in the world, is going to be house prices, you know, mm. and, and, and some commercial property as well. Although I haven't got as much sort of visibility on that or a stronger view on that, but all asset prices are going to go up. And in this country, it's, it's residential property that leads the way. <laughs>
0: And that's sort of interesting because if asset prices are going up, then it's still not pumping more money into the economy, is it? Like it's. Oh, not. no, it is.
1: It is, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it does a lot of things. So, yeah, there's obviously all sorts of bad stuff like inter- intergenerational wealth transfers and yep. putting massive mortgages on young people, which basically is a form of enslavement. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. no, there's, and it's been going on for a while, don't worry. We've all been joined that party. Um, yeah. Modern... modern <laughs> slavery um <laughs> so it's probably i and being disrespectful for people who actually have experienced that stuff but anyway um uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah i have heard employee employers say you know i want i want my workforce all with big mortgages so they have to come to work <laughs> that's right and that's
1: why there's no wage you know people aren't asking for wage increases because they value mm. the security of the income more than an extra one or two percent in a pay rise because they've got to pay that mortgage or that that all, you, right, you don't you know, you don't go and start that startup when you've got that big mortgage. Mm. Destroys entrepreneurialism. I know three people younger than me, but good friends, who um, have uh, one of them has taken the leap, and two of them just couldn't do it. So, and the one who took the leap has got an outstandingly um, optimistic and uh, you know risk loving um, disposition. You need
0: that.
1: Um, <laughs> You need it now. You just, the ability <laughs> of taking risk, you know, when your wife, in his case, the wife, in fact, all of them were the wives who have kids, young kids, saying, mm.
0: they're, yeah, they're,
1: the wives are working. Um, it's just that they needed the two incomes to live where they wanted to. So so anyway, look, I think, um, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, that asset price inflation dynamic, that that sort of, you uh, easy money um it does get into the economy through perceptions of wealth through the fact that someone actually does get the cash when you borrow the money and you know, they yeah. may put it into something else i mean admittedly that might end up in mercedes and lamborghinis and boats rather than uh it does speak to a broader problem we got around inequality and underlying demand in the economy i won't go into that now but it does yeah. get in there it's just a, i think it's a very clunky way to do it. Uh, The big one, though, is construction, and Mm. that's the area where we still got a few sort of question marks because the pandemic, of course, has shut the borders. The population dynamics in the short term are going to shift, and that may have some implications for construction, particularly in the apartment sector, which has been, been pretty, you know, much half the market for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, in terms of construction but that's actually the real kick to the economy when the housing market picks up prices pick up people get involved then they start going and building and doing renovations and that gives people jobs and gets the whole thing fired up and um, i think that will happen but i think prices are going to move a lot more early i.e 2021 before the construction piece and the jobs piece goes later
0: we're already seeing a renovation boom though you know, like may not, may, maybe not in the multi-dwelling space, but actually individuals renovating their properties, you know, I mean, on a, on a micro level, I was talking to my builder cause I renovated and finished at the beginning of this year. And and they said, they've got contracts signed up for the next 12 months. And they've, you know, they've had a good pipelines before, but they've never actually had the contracts signed up, you know, yeah. for a 12 months worth of build. And, um, you know, and across the board, you just see hoarding on so many properties. Um, it, it's noticeable the increase in renovation. Uh, yeah. I'm only talking Sydney, of course, but um,
1: well, it's happening everywhere because it's, mm. it's it is that dynamic. There's the, the typical dynamic, which is the capitalisation story. I because the land value has gone up, we can now. You know,
0: yeah, so mm, yes, which is just, just a cyclical,
1: th- yeah. Um, mm. Well, four to you can get justify access, also it. Justify, Justi- yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. No one's
1: actually ever told me what the right ratio is, how much the house is worth to the land. But anyway, there's apparently some 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 number we all. <laughs> yes. <off>. Oh, there's <laughs> all
0: sorts of theories uh, on
1: I'm that. Yeah, sure there is. Yeah. Anyway, all we know is when prices go up, people put in new kitchens. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, I think again a behavioural shift is everyone's been stuck at home. All these people yeah, are normally slaving yeah. away in the office for 60 hours a week and sitting working home going, okay, I've really got to do something about this place. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's part of it and that's why I reckon if you want to do a renovation, which I would like to do a, a new kitchen, but I'm waiting at least 18 months. You know, It's just going to be a nightmare trying to get that work done in Sydney in the next 18 months. Yeah. Well, we only live one, floor. <laughs> Yeah, the kitchen will survive. I did a kitchen about four years ago in my previous place, so I think I can just wait on this one for a little while. <laughs>
0: it might take eighty months to get built. You that's know, that's right. It's <laughs> and it'd be
1: just unbelievable. Um, like the last one, we were without a kitchen for four weeks, and I thought I was going to, you know, move out. So. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, he's you can nice. see that high-rise Harry is very um,
2: in the media. He loves it anyway, but I mean, he's, we've got to. You know, we need stimulus. We need subsidies. Um, we need to get rid of the foreign, you know, tax additional stamp duty. Um, Now, ultimately, you haven't got university students, you haven't got migration, which generally do buy new apartments, Um, no investors. A lot of first-time buyers have been made aware of, hopefully through podcasts like this, that (laughs) the building issues and the risks of buying off the plan and new property and the performance Mm. of those. So, you know, you can see the construction sector is really going to struggle to get that confidence back, which, um,
1: you know, a lot of the building issues are, are part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually haven't heard many really dire anecdotes. um, Apart from you, we've got
0: plenty for you.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) So.
2: I mean, this one today is uh, it's on the Australian, and this is, uh, I mean, public knowledge, you know, lend lease are subsidizing. This is not nothing to do with lend lease in particular, but, um, you know, there's a house and development package that's in Jordan Springs East in Western City, and it's been uh, built on a dump, basically,
0: mm. uh,
2: and the whole suburb's sinking. Wow. Well, you know, six hundred million land lease are going to have to fund all the buyers in that new house and land package development to sort of offset the house sinking. I guess. Um, so yeah. That's a pretty well, it's a, what a
0: nightmare. Yeah, that is,
1: that, that is a nightmare. But um, I think well, I actually, think that
0: just on that, just because you know we all know that the Opal Towers story and the Mascot Towers story, but this is the first one really about a suburb. You know, so we talk about, oh, that's one building. This is our suburb. So it's just an interesting and a terrible um, example, I guess, of how bad it can go. I'd like to think that if, you know, higherised Harry and others like him, instead of just trying to get the government to say, yeah, 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 let more foreigners, you know, buy our stock because then they just build it to a different standard they don't build That's it to a right. local standard i'd like to see the whole bloody standards rise and the demand from buyers push those developers to actually build better product and then then we can have more confidence in encouraging people to buy them mm-hmm. anyway yeah that is that.
1: and i think it also is this cheap money phenomenon where you know when money's you know not only cheap or interest rates are low but readily available, um, you get sort of, you drag in a lot of second tier, lower standard players mm. uh, into the development game. Uh, and yeah, the standards I think are, are, are really important. So yeah, I would agree. I mean, this this is going to be one of the big sort of battlegrounds and decision points for our society oh, yeah. Um, yeah. is do we want to run a high immigration program? or not and you know if we do and I don't see any you know, major reasons I think it's there's more risk to stopping it than not but then you know what, what does that mean and things like you've just talked about around building standards um, I think there's a lot of issues around standards full stop that our community needs to be clearer on um, mm. if we're going to run sort of a, a, a somewhat chaotic society which I think Australia's just managed brilliantly and <laughs> it's created a great place yeah. but you know we still need to standards you can't have the standards in anything, whether it's building codes or certain behaviours coming in from other countries with these uh, newly arrived Australians. So anyway, that's a different story. But I think, it's part, I think what, it's part of what the way people are going to be thinking an issue people are going to be thinking about as we deglobalize and nationalism rises. Well, that's going to be, you know, in 12 months'
2: time, let's say we haven't gone there but the vaccine or, you know, we, <laughs> that's a conversation itself. But let's say they do open the borders in 2022, 2023. What's your thoughts on, what's the alternative for the government? Do they go back to importing people? You know, we all know the economic benefits of that. Um, Or do they take a more conservative approach? Or do they even increase the number that they were thinking to play catch up?
1: But also um, just because it's such a sugar hit for the economy. Yeah, so the budget actually has the government's assumptions around these things um, under underpinning it because you have to have some view on population in order to create mm. sort of about, you know forecasts for the economy and therefore for the budget. And essentially, the way they've they've sort of um, structured it in terms of the uh, going forward is that you, got, you obviously got the borders closed till the middle of twenty twenty two, in which case um, you have a massive decline in permanent visas and temporary visas so actually the population growth goes to sort of near zero for 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 sort of a year and then it comes back but when you come back you you come back to essentially a um a, a population dynamic the same as what we had before so essentially it's no catch up which are my numbers telling me that means we're going to lose about four hundred thousand australians from what we would have been otherwise which in the long scheme mm-hmm. of things isn't that much but it is significant in the next few years <clears throat> then the other one is is that they're not factoring in any curtailment of the immigration program so that's gonna that's that's a yeah i think a sensible way the government's gone about it just we're going back to normal what we regarded as normal the last 10 years but that will be the political issue um and that'll be an issue mm-hmm. that i think will be a difficult one. Australia's managed it pretty well. It doesn't explicitly just debate immigration policy. I mean, this government cut immigration back a little bit in a headline manner with announcements, but in a reality, they hardly did anything. So yeah. <laughs> they're fighting <laughs> they're a battle fighting between, between listening to the sort of anti-immigration, nationalistic, you know, this sort of... These forces that are sort of getting louder and bigger that I talked about earlier around mm. the world versus... An economic reality that without immigration, Australia's growth rate would be a lot lower and our whole economy would be a lot more problematic with all the debt that we've got out there in the household sector. Well, Gladys was out there quite publicly, wasn't she? We need to slow down, you know, cut immigration,
2: Um, even though she was on a building sort of boom. um, COVID's allowed her to ease congestion, but I hear that it's kind of back to where it was. People don't want to use the public transport, but that's well,
0: right. Well, you've just got to say we have to use masks on public transport. And I think a lot more people would actually use public transport, but that's a whole other issue. The, the vaccine, though, I mean, all, of this, all this conversation about, you know, population um, mm. growth returning to, you know, normal levels in inverted commas um, really relies on vaccine, right? And. The type of vaccine that uh, will, uh, you know, prevent the spread of the virus, and I was just listening to Dr. Norman Swan this morning. It's quite fascinating in terms of what this vaccine that's, that Pfizer's just released is meant to do. It's, he said it's, you know, it's really you still get it, but you don't get symptoms. I think that's basically the way it was. So it, it's like there's different. There's vaccines and there's vaccines, right? Um, and and then it's got to get rolled out, and then it's got to be proven to see what, does it actually create immunity amongst. In the, in the population or not. There's just so much that we don't know about these vaccines. Mm. This is just like the first line of defence, right? Um, you know, can immigration return without that?
1: Uh Well, no. I don't think we're going to be opening our borders in any meaningful way to anyone uh, while uh, the virus is still circulating. I mean, we're still so early in the piece with this virus, and we don't even know what immunity is like once you get it. Yeah. Mm. At the moment they're saying, it's kind of funny, in the last few months, you go, oh, we think immunity lasts for eight months. It's like, why is that? And so, well, because people have had immunity, you got it eight months ago when it first came up. Okay, <laughs> that's, yeah. well, that's very scientific. So they yeah. don't know that. Um, it looks good for the vaccines. So I'm no expert in that stuff. Um, yeah. But we, we 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 the one thing about this virus which just is obvious in the UK announcement overnight about this new strain there mm. is it's just it's just so viral. It's just so yeah. contagious. Um and it mutates. And yeah, and we know that we've already painted it as the absolute bogeyman that it's the world's sort of, you know, it's 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 a major threat and you can see that in our domestic politics at the state level and border closures. So it's going to be very hard to convince people in this country or elsewhere that, you know, we're going to have to live with the virus. So Australia and New Zealand have locked themselves into an elimination strategy effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, if we, if you know, if we're not going to be opening our borders in any meaningful way mm. until the thing's not around because if it gets in at all, it just, it's we've just got no immunity in our community. It'll just take off like it is in South Korea right now, who did so well, mm. Germany, who did well. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just so virile. So, yeah, but look, Europe, it's a long way to go.
0: They are actually... Living with it, you know, my sister lives in Italy, and I was talking to her the other day. And of course, they had this, you know, terrible. Well, it's still terrible. They got 600 deaths a day, and I mean, it's still pretty horrible. Um, but you know, obviously, at the beginning, they went to a very hard lockdown, and and they led the, the other than China, of course, they sort of led the world because they were the first ones really to get to get um, infected with it. And, you know, I said, well, what's happened after, after summer? Because, of course, they all went on holidays all throughout Europe and then, of course, they've had a second wave and, and it's worse than the first wave. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? Are you going back into lockdown? She goes, oh, no, you know, there's, there's three stages. We've got yellow, orange and red. And if you're in red, you know, you can't move around as, as frequently enough they'll close the restaurants and cafes etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you're in orange you know they're opening it for takeaway and and they're restricting travel <laughs> from one region to another but largely even though COVID is very much in the community they are living with it you know yep. and uh, and they've all just accepted I think they can't afford not to and so it's a, that economic versus health decision really yeah
1: yeah it is it, it is, is the it payoff is. and, and we have been lucky. We've managed to sort of get on top of it. Um, and, yeah, Australia and New Zealand did better than other countries in the Spanish flu 100 years ago because of our natural isolation. Mm. And also don't underestimate the fact that we, we don't live in as congested a lifestyle as the European True. and Asian and North American countries. So there is most, I think that explains why people want to live in houses again in Australia yes. after sort of 20 <laughs> years of moving into apartments. Um so, you know, we just don't have that mentality and what, what I see is the risk, and I don't I, I, I don't think this is going to happen and I hope it doesn't, but the risk for Australia and New Zealand is that we're going to have to live with this thing forever, you know, that there is no mm. effective sort of elimination strategy. It's like any other yeah. flu, it pops up, but because it's so virile, um, when it pops up, it, it, you know, hits you like a ton of bricks as a community. Mm. And if that's the case, which, you know, we all pray that it's not the case, but if that's the case, Australia and New Zealand strategy is the wrong one.
2: So you kind of mentioned there, we're not do a bit of a segue back into the property market. I think, you, uh, you know, people want to live in houses, but I think another thing is obviously driving that is interest rates, which we spoke about before. I mean, I noticed this week that it's the first time that RBA treasury rates sort of went under zero. Um, mm. You know, that's, it's a very interesting thing you know, to get your head around and, um, you know, a lot of Europe's had it for a long time. And But, you know, what, what's, what's really happening there? And is, are we going to see negative rates here? I mean, what's your view on all that?
1: Yeah, so because we're part of an international financial system with a free flow of capital, we, we, get, we just you know, we get sucked into the vortex of what's happening overseas. And the thing about the international, the world economy is that while capital flows around freely, almost completely uninhibited, with the exception of a few places like China, Um, uh, trading goods and services moves around, but not quite as freely. You can't sell a big Mac made in Sydney and Tokyo if it's a mispricing. Um, but there is a lot of trading goods and services still. But the one thing there's huge restrictions on, which we're just talking about is, is people. Um, and the big thing is, is that there are countries like Japan right now and has been the case for a while that have shrinking populations. Like literally Mm. their population is declining. Yeah. Their working age population has been declining now for 15 years. Um, In parts of Europe, it's sort of not far behind Japan. So you could argue that when, you know, when you you wake up at the start of each year and sort of go, okay, well, our economy is going to be or our population is going to be 1% smaller at the end of the year, then having a 1% smaller economy is, you know, everyone's still got the same standard of living theoretically. Um mm. and therefore you could also argue because the interest rate level sort of broadly just should match up to the rate of growth in the economy that maybe negative interest rates isn't yeah, okay. a, a bad thing um problem is is places like australia our, our underlying growth, but you know maybe not right this second, but you know over the last ten years is 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 quite strong we've got immigration we've got a you know a younger population than than Japan or Europe. And our interest rates should not be negative. But because capital is flying around everywhere, it's dragging our interest rates down and pushing our currency up. And so, yeah, the international economy is not perfectly integrated, but the money system isn't far from it. And that's what's causing it. So, yeah, our, our interest rates shouldn't be negative in any way, shape or form. Things like negative rates or other unconventional monetary policies like QE or term funding facilities for banks. They're, they're sort of things that in a place like Australia you put in place when there's a crisis, like a <laughs> once in a hundred year pandemic. But you get rid of them <laughs> straight away because our yeah, interest there rates is. in this country, the base rate, which is currently 0.1%, over the next 10 years if we're going to get growth of 1% or 2% with inflation of 1% or 2%, that means our interest rates should be 3 or 4%. And anything below that is easy, stimulatory, and it will create distortions in the economy. So the RBA is a price taker, for lack of a better word, in the world economy. They just have to respond to all these money flying around the world. They've tried to resist, but they can't. And, of course, what that means is that we're going to have bigger asset price bubbles than everyone else because we've got more growth. We've got a better, brighter future than places like Japan. But I guess the bank margin, margin, obviously, the
2: big four always controlled the market and, um, you know, it's been good times for shareholders of the big four. Um, But, you know, bit by bit they're slowly not doing anything, they're kind of stuck in time and a lot of new entrants are sort of stealing their market share. So that margin's getting smaller every year. So mm. not only is the RBA rate low, but you know, the people the cost that people borrow at due to competition is is getting sharper and sharper, it's coming I guess. Down, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, obviously this leads into what you said, you know, earlier about a property market boom, um, which, you know, Veronica and I kind of can see as well. But do you think there's going to be the apra you know who knows what could happen the payment holidays taught me a lesson and said no one knows what's going to happen around the corner but
1: what do you think they're going to do to sort of slow things down i'm i'm not sure is the is the is is the is the answer um, they they i'm pretty sure if the market plays out as i'm thinking um, they will do something the the, the rba through the Council of Financial Regulators, which is essentially, you know, APRA and the RBA and the Treasury all sitting around and ASIC and ACCC and everyone talking about what the world is around them. And the, the RBA will say to APRA, We need some help. We don't want to have to put rates up, but there is some financial instability concerns. People are just borrowing too much, which is essentially what happened in 2016. Yeah, You've yeah. got to remember in the old days, like, like pre 96 and 97. APRA used to be part of the RBA. It was part of the central bank's function to monitor the banking system, which I would strongly argue is uh, what it should be, but there was a mistake what we did. But anyway, so the RBA will ask APRA, yeah, we'll ask APRA to do something. What they did before was essentially look at investors. There's no need to do that right now because right. investors yeah, exactly. are not, not, you know, doing anything crazy. Mm. So then the next thing they do is LVRs and um, yep. um, that hits first home, Buyers, Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. I, I, to, to be fair, I haven't put a lot of thought into it other than to say they're going to have to do something, <laughs> which, um, <laughs> uh, you know, those are the two main things that they've done in the past. But because this cycle is different, as I sort of spoke about earlier, that it's been driven by owner-occupiers, whereas past cycles have really, at the margin, been driven by investors. They, they may have to come up with a different sort of approach and, and I'm not sure exactly what that is. It, it, they've only got so many tools, which is, you know, LVRs um, and, and sort of uh, pricing. Mm. You know, they've eased all of this stuff, right? They panicked when this pandemic exactly. struck. They just eased everything up to go back and yeah. shifted sort of they might be a bit reticent too because it'll look like, you know, they're chopping and changing. But, you know, in the end they do what they've got to do. Uh, but what it means is they'll be late. So it won't be in February or March. It'll be in. You know, June, July. It'll be once, they have, once the once their investors are, you know, clearly pushing prices up ten, fifteen percent across the whole country, that that, that they'll respond. They'll respond like they should be doing something right now. Basically,
0: what's interesting is though, in the absence of investors it's showing true demand though isn't it because of course back in 2016 with investors you know mm. really high in, in percentage in, in activity in the marketplace it's hard to separate out of that well what is the real demand for housing you know for actual properties or or accommodation if you like um yep. and i you know I, it's funny because at the beginning of COVID, i thought to myself i think i might have said it a couple of times on these podcasts, but you know I, People being cooped up in their houses, the minute they're let out, they're going to get bolt out like greyhounds chasing rabbits. They're going to be like, give me a bigger house. And that's exactly what we've seen. Um, you know, we've seen search terms, you know, for homeowners mm. go up 800% and stuff like that. So this is this is a real reaction, I think, that's quite measurable, you know, um, for people think, in the actual living.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it's real. And uh, you've got the issue about what it does at the residential end, which is mm. you know, home office. And then you got the the. I think potentially even bigger issue is about what it means for commercial property because I think there's no doubt that a lot of people who work in CBDs in you know, office blocks um, are going to at least spend twenty percent of their time at home now. Yeah, yeah, more than before. So yeah, Friday's a done deal. Um, but will they spend? <laughs> will will they spend? Two days or three days at home. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason you're looking at three, four hours out of Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide for a a, uh, country property is because, you know, if you're going away for a two-day weekend, you'd sort of go away, you could drive for two hours. You wouldn't drive for four. But if you're going away for a four-day weekend and you're working while you're away, you'll drive for three or four. So suddenly Bateman's Bay is in play. So... I think that you, you're really going to see this big shift away from office towards home, away from the city towards the suburbs and the regions and this is all technology enabled with the background of health concerns and um, I don't know where it lands, none of us do, but I think it's a, that's the one of the big issues for 21 is is what decisions are made by businesses and, and how people respond. Do people leave jobs because, you know, they're being told they have to go back to the office and they can't actually work from home two days a week? Yeah, I don't know. But that's the big one well, isn't it? It's, it works in negotiation, five years. Five years. yeah,
2: between yeah. employers and employees, and the power has always been with employers. But now, employees are saying, "Well, this is what we want," uh, especially the top talent. And they say, "Well, if you're not going to offer me flexible working, let's say they want three days at home, and employers want three days at work, which is much different to five days at work." You know, last year, we just don't know how that negotiation is going to play out. I guess. Uh, no, this is they, financially. They want, yeah
0: you got to think, you know, an employer's position, you think, well, I need less office space. You well, know, there's a, a real benefit to them.
1: Yeah. Oh, if yeah. It's, it's very real. And I think they're very, you know, a lot of businesses right now, the senior management are very keen to sort of get some visibility on what that looks like so they can start mm. making decisions because, they've, you know, you're paying a lot of rent in places and you're seeing huge discounting going on across the CBDs of uh, all around the world. To keep keep businesses in office space and so forth, this will take a couple of years, if not three to five, to play out. But there's got to be a a structural shift down in demand. Now, does it just mean that a whole bunch of B and C grade commercial property in the cities gets turned into retail or even residential? Yeah, I don't know the answer. That was sort of what was happening before. Yeah, do people want to live in the city now, given that you know health concerns? We just don't know where it's going to settle. So, yeah, I think. It's, it's that's one of the key un, unknowns for the, for the whole industry. But we do know one thing is that the, the people's views on where they live have shifted no matter what happens around the office, and that is we're going to spend more time at home, we want a bigger home, and we probably want some people are going to consider that they can have a serious professional job in the city and live three hours out of Sydney
0: well, some people are moving moving states and doing that. You know, the, we've had a number of uh, interviews around Brisbane and uh, anecdotally we we're hearing from buyers agents up there that people with big jobs who normally would be bound to live in Melbourne or Sydney are now actually relocating, living in Brisbane and still having their big job, you know, yeah, and working and, remotely.
1: And, you know, I mean, I think, Chris, you mentioned about, you know, if, you, if you're onto the superstars and you can negotiate it. Well, you know, mm. if the senior management team will live in Byron Bay yeah, they got it. They can't then make all their middle managers and ex- other executives all turn up to the office every day. You know <laughs> that culture will not work unless you work for you know Harry triggerboff or Frank Lowry. you know, <laughs> I, I did like about bar
2: and back, I do feel for them right now because they've just lost their beach. Um, I was up there a couple of months ago. I was like, "Where's this beach gone?" And then. Yeah, you know, this big storm happening at mm. the moment. So well, they shouldn't, shouldn't have built so. on the
1: sand dunes. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's a biblical principle on that. You know, there's a few things I remember from my my Sunday school days. You know, those who build well, houses from, on sand.
1: <laughs> I learned it from first year geography. Is that you know you need sand dunes <laughs> to replenish beaches? But anyway. Local <laughs> councils in Australia 50, 60, 70 years ago never did that geography lesson.
0: No. <laughs> and they but, still haven't worked it out in many Well, they've cases. worked it out but
1: they <laughs> can't out. fix it.
2: I
0: oh, know. So is that There's... your
2: property done by Warren? Or yeah. Have you got it, is. it
1: is. There we go. It certainly is. It's it's the residents in, in Terrigal and Winnamble who want the council to bail them out in Collaroy, um, probably <laughs> some in Byron <laughs> Bay maybe. I don't think there is actually a lot of beachfront properties in Byron Bay but... You build on a sand dune, you're going to lose your house because the sand dunes are there to replenish the beach when you have a king tide or a major storm. And that's not just in Sydney or the east coast of Australia. That's natural all around the world. And I don't think the rest of us should be bailing people out who've paid a fortune for beachfront property. I think in a, a world we're moving into where this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue over the next 50 years, um, you, buy a, you build a, buy a house on a dune, then you're a Dumbo.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And I'm like, you know, it'd be different if all these people had invited everyone over in the in the community that couldn't afford the beachfront home and to actually give them, you know, direct access to the beach in front of their houses before these. It'd be different if they were community-minded in that way. But I'm yes, pretty yeah. certain a lot of them haven't. <laughs>
1: I'm not going to comment on that, Veronica, but, uh, you know, there is yin and yang, there is karma, Uh there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on out there, and their houses are washing away.
0: Well, there I think was plenty- I was reading
1: a um,
2: a Knight Frank report, I think it was, or maybe it was a. It's kind of showing that in a suburb where there are premium properties that are on the ocean front, or harbour front, or riverfront or whatever you know front it is, but you know the performance of them versus you know a street back, and this sort of disconnect where. You know, the ones right on the front have performed much better, obviously, because of scarcity and livability, et cetera. But it's, it's quite funny when you think about the longer term impact of that where it could reverse, you know, the person a little bit further up the cliff, um, you know, gets all the returns and the one at the front, you know, is losing its yard day by day. Yeah, or, well, or you just sea
0: you, rise, sea levels rising by up to a meter in sort of by 2060. So, hmm. well,
1: that's it. You could you could actually go for a beachfront at various times in the future. So you you know you buy three streets back <laughs> and you're going for a 2050 beachfront. <laughs> a bit like you in your kitchen, Ryan. You know. Yes,
0: I'm, you am get doing
2: there it you get there one day.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious! <laughs> right. Thank you so much, Warren. It's a very interesting conversation, and um, and I do love the fact we sort of skirted around some some pretty good Dumbo's. Oh, sorry, elephants and Dumbo's in there. Um, you know, this is. I think this is all. Um, we've got to understand that we're obviously globalization may be changing but we're still part of a global economy in many regards and then we've obviously got all the micro stuff that's happening here as well and so it's it's always great when you come along and uh help us understand what's really going on.
1: <laughs> well thank you Veronica and thanks Chris it's been good to have a chat and uh yeah look we 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 can only try and Think about the issues out there because, you know, the thing that we've got to be care- clear on is that the, the world is very complex and the economists can only shed light on the challenges. Um, we've all got to make our own decisions and common sense never goes too much astray.
0: Yes.
2: It's funny you say that about economists. I mean, uh, one of the biggest benefits for, to be an economist is no one keeps you accountable, but um, how about we get you on uh, in 12 months' time and
1: uh, have a chat about 2021 because I think it's going to be another interesting year. Okay. I'll, I'll do twelve months and I'll I'll take an option on as soon as Sydney house prices go up ten percent from today, then you gotta get me gotta on. Get me
0: okay.
1: <laughs> well, that Sounds means I got my forecast it. right. Excellent. All right. Well thank you very much. Thanks, Warren.
2: Cheers, mate we want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is
0: following up from something that warren said a few times actually was that you know really investors typically drive property markets and this recent uh surge of activity we've seen is certainly in the owner occupier space and and uh, you know warren's sort of saying well that's 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 novel that's different and and um i think Let's break it down a little bit because what I find is very interesting is that yes, investors might get into the market, they might, you know, bring more dollars into it, let's face it, more people, more competition. But the people that get most emotional about property are the owner-occupiers. And so if you find that, you know, at an auction and there's a bunch of investors and an owner-occupier or two, typically the owner-occupier is more likely to prevail because they're the ones more emotionally invested in buying that property. So whilst investors help push the price up, sure they do, it's still the owner-occupier appeal that's so important when you're looking at at choosing an asset to buy.
2: I 100% agree. If you want the owner-occupier appeal in what you're purchasing, um, but it's very handy if the investors are buying that as well, right? So you've got first-time buyers, you've got downsizers, and you've got investors in the market um, and that, that those all three of them wanting your apartment or your house or what you think about buyers really good for sort of pushing prices up when you've only just got the owner occupier market. So I think that's what you know you'll find that when you've got this boom is you've got a lot of investors are buying those say low one million houses off those first first home buyers and mm. um, that'll be pretty pretty scary if that happens next year.
0: Yes, hopefully not. But also I think you got to remember when investors, you know, push property markets is they're also buying a lot of investor stock and that's when spruikers go yep, rampant and exactly. hopefully they'll leave the 1st home buyers alone.
2: Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Please join us for our next episode. We've got Eliza Owen from CoreLogic joining us and she's going to answer a very important question for us, which is why hasn't The Australian property market crashed when everybody thought it was going to at the beginning of COVID. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If
2: you're looking to buy your first home, Thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website wealthful.com.au.
0: If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au.
2: Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again.
0: And remember, don't be a dumbo.